Uh, good morning. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. And if you're visiting with us today, you're coming at a great time. We're at the end of a series of conversations that we have called The Good Life. And we're working our way through Jesus' most epic sermon, his uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so you get to hear the Cliff Notes version. You get to come on the day when kind of the whole thing gets summarized and you have to miss all the other stuff. So welcome. And I'm going to begin this morning. I'm going to kick our time off today by reading our scripture. So we're in Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through the end. And you're going to hear Jesus do three things in this section of scripture. He's going to set up a dramatic contrast that we need to hear. And we'll spend most of our time on that. And then he's going to tell you, uh, not to be too epic, but it is pretty epic, he's going to tell you his place in the human drama. And then he's going to talk about what he does for us and in us. So let's go old school and let's stand out of reverence for God's word. If you have a Bible, please look with me. If you don't, mygateway.life is our app. If you would go there, there's a sermon card and the, Bible, the passage is there. And I'd love for you to look along with me now and through the rest of our conversation today. Matthew 7, 13 through the end of the chapter, Sermon on the Mount. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now watch out for false prophets. We're going to refer to this verse again later in our time. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the wind blew, beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, streams rose, wind blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Amazed at his teaching. Now, I suspect that some of the amazement is lost on us because Typically, as a culture, we're pretty familiar with Jesus' message, although I want to give it a, a shine this morning. But I want us just to do our best to stand in amazement, the radical thing that Jesus has done in this sermon. 
because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Father, we want to build on the rock. We want our profession to match our heart and match our life and match our actions. We want to be the people who bear good fruit. Help us this morning. And in particular, break open our chests and massage your word for us into our chest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I saw on YouTube a couple of weeks ago a crash course in philosophy. It's 46 episodes of a crash course in philosophy. Each episode is, I don't know, 8 to 12 minutes, and it covers various aspects of philosophy. The last episode, the 46th episode, was entitled, What is the Good Life? And he covered various philosophical perspectives on the good life because that's a question that drives all of us. It was a good life, and how do we get it? And in this last episode, he spent quite a bit of time talking about existentialism. So those of you who had the privilege of going to college, I'm taking you back to your college years. If you had a philosophy class, you may rem- even if you didn't, you, you'll remember existentialism, and you will remember the name Albert Camus, which is you know, one of the French philosophers, one of the fathers, I guess, of existentialism. He's probably the most widely known existentialist philosopher. Camus imagines in one of his writings the myth of Sisyphus. Now, Sisyphus was the guy that the gods condemned to push a rock up a hill for eternity. So he pushes the rock up the hill, and then the rock rolls back down, and then he goes back down and he gets the rock, and he pushes the rock back up the hill again. And the punishment is just the the pointlessness of it, I guess. Camus asks us in this work, to imagine that Sisyphus is happy. In other words, he says, each of us is basically Sisyphus. Because there's no inherent meaning in life, therefore there is no inherent happiness, there's no inherent good life. We assign whatever meaning we want to whatever we're doing, we essentially invent our own good life, and it is whatever we say it is. So if we were to summarize the existentialist message, and this is a quote from Crash Course in Philosophy, episode 46, we could summarize it like this. Your life is in your hands. You and only you have the power to make your life great, and only you can evaluate its greatness. All the elements of that, and I want you to know there are some things that Jesus would like about this existentialist message. I'll give you two things that he would like. First of all, he would like its positivity. What you do matters. What you and I do matters. Secondly, I think Jesus would like the call to action. Jesus also called us to action. If you remember, over the course of the last week's our sermon, Jesus said, when you see an interior part of your life that is out of line with the exterior part of your life, then act on it. He gave the example of a, of a hand, you know, a gangrenous hand. You see a gangrenous hand, cut it off. Or he, he gave the example of a maladjusted relationship. Do something about it. Take action. So Jesus would like the call to action. But there are some definite things that Jesus would not like about the existentialist message. Three things I can think of. First of all, Jesus believed that our lives are in God's hand. Secondly, Jesus believed that God is going to assess our lives. There will be a reckoning. So it matters. There's meaning. And the third thing that Jesus wouldn't like is Jesus also believed that there are better and worse ways of living your life. 
It's not all the same. It doesn't just depend on our choice. There are better and worse ways of living our lives. There is a good life, and there is a decidedly not good way to live. So if it's not all the same, if there's inherent meaning, if if there are better and worse alternatives to living the good life, then what about us? What does Jesus say about us? So let's summarize real quickly, and then let's get into the epic conclusion that Jesus has for this message. In answer to that question, what about us? We get a great surprise and some encouragement. Throughout the sermon, Jesus said, we're the kind of people who have the good life. Or to use Jesus' language, we're living blessed lives. Not because we have a nice car or we take great vacations or because our kids go to good school. We're living the good life because we are people who need God and we know it. We see, even in our weak and vulnerable times, in fact, especially in our weak and vulnerable times, we see that a deep connection with God is available to us, comforting us, nourishing us, giving us wisdom and clarity. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said, because they're the kind of people who will be filled. So who has the good life? According to Jesus, we do. And for another important reason, we have the good life because we are becoming good people in our lives, in our daily actions. Look, it's hard to imagine a bad person leading a good life by definition, right? Well, we're becoming people whose daily decisions reflect God's character, who make an impact on those around us for good. We're becoming, Jesus talked about our anger, we're becoming less angry, less dismissive of others, less lustful, more honest, more loving, because God is at work in us. We're increasingly becoming those kinds of people because we are allowing God to change us from the inside out. Remember we talked about how real rightness, real righteousness is an inside out job. We are allowing him to penetrate to the level of our motivations and our desires. Furthermore, according to Jesus, we're living the good life because as followers of Christ, for us, this religion is real. It's not hypocritical. We don't give for the applause of others. We don't pray to raise our spiritual credibility. Our relationship with God is about our relationship with God. It's real. Finally, according to Jesus, we have the good life. We talked about this last week because worry does not dominate our lives. Jesus offers us a life beyond worry. As we learn to turn the governorship of our lives over to him and to seek a connection with him as the driving principle in our lives. So today... Jesus concludes this epic discussion of the good life by offering three life-changing observations. Seriously, these three observations have shaped the entire body of the New Testament. This is almost like Christianity 101 today. And it has and continues to shape our lives, many of us. So, three observations today. Number one, Jesus sets up a dramatic contrast that we need to see P.S., it's for us. Secondly, he shows us his place in the human drama. P.S., it's big. And third, he lets us know what he does in us and for us. Dynamic contrast, his place in the human drama and what he does. So first of all, he sets up a dynamic contrast. Jesus clearly establishes, did you see it? That there are two ways of living and he contrasts the two. The two paths. Two kinds of trees, two kinds of disciples, two kinds of prophets, two different places to build a home. 
He makes this dynamic contrast. And by the way, I'm convinced, as I said, this part of the message is especially for us. It's a sober warning to us, literally. Why is that so? Well, that's because, don't miss this, the contrast is not between good people and bad people. It's not us in here and those out there. The two ways of living does not refer to the good religious way and the bad God-hating way. Again, it's not us good religious church-going people, us people with the right politics or social graces versus those terrible people out there somewhere, those irreligious, awful people out in our culture. That's not the contrast. No, Jesus is directing his attention throughout, squarely at us. We are in danger of being on both of these paths. And Jesus' sermon, especially this conclusion, is a warning shot to us. Choose me. Seek the kingdom. Make sure your actions line up with your words. In effect, he wants us to choose which tree we want to be and where we want to build our house. If you need proof, look back at the whole sermon. Those of you who've been here for the last few weeks, you'll remember. He does the same thing throughout the sermon. Do you remember the discussion on prayer? This was not about pagan people who don't pray and people who pray. Both people prayed. But one group prayed wrongly. One group prayed so that their more superficial needs would be met now. In fact, they pray in a way that kind of demands that the rest of us acknowledge them. Remember the discussion on giving? Both groups give. But one group gives in entirely the wrong way. And are they giving to benefit the poor? No. They're giving to benefit themselves. They're giving to maximize their own reputation. Look at the trees in today's passage. Both trees produce fruit. But one tree produces bad fruit. One tree produces good fruit. Look at the houses illustration. Both built fine houses. They might have both been in in Willisford. But one house was built on sand, and one house was built on a rock. So he's not contrasting good people and bad people. What is he contrasting? Jesus is contrasting spiritual people and Christians. Verse 21 in this passage, if you're looking at it, you may remember it. Jesus offers this by way of illustration. He says, they're going to come to me, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord. That word Lord is the Greek word kurios. Some of you know enough to know that. That's an awesome word. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew a couple of centuries before Jesus because Greek was the language of the world. There was a group of scholars that translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. And when they translated the word Yahweh, the word that Old Testament scholars thought, they thought it was so holy they wouldn't even write it on the text often, when they translated the word Yahweh, they translated it with this word, Lord. They're going to come to me saying, Lord, Lord, which means they acknowledge the divinity of Jesus. They got orthodox belief down. They ascribe to the right way of believing. They believe the right stuff. Not only do they say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. And for Greek, that was an intensifier. They're believing the right stuff, and they've got some passion behind it. Then, didn't we prophesy in your name? 
We did miracles in your name. This is a person who's involved in ministry. I'm ashamed of myself when I look at this person's resume. What does Jesus say about this person? He says, you did all these good things maybe, but you didn't do the will of God. Your actions didn't match your heart. And then he explains it further in verse 23 at the end, doesn't he? Jesus says, then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. You didn't have a relationship with me. You didn't relate to me at all. You did spiritual stuff, but we didn't have a relationship. Jesus is not saying the way that you can really mess up your life is to miss the path of spirituality. He's saying the way to mess up the path of your life is to miss a relationship with me. He's not contrasting good people and bad people. He's contrasting spiritual people and Christians. Both groups are doing the same thing, but for very different reasons. And this is the part that we need to see, Gateway. Look, spiritual people do religion because of what they can get out of it. Because of how much it will benefit them. That's why we pray. Because we want to be benefited. Our culture is obsessed with spirituality. Just do a search on Amazon and you'll find a, pages of books about spirituality. It's overwhelming. And we listen to Oprah or Joel Osteen or John Piper or Deepak Chopra as if it's all the same. Because if it's spiritual, then they're all good guys, right? But according to Jesus, it's not all the same. Spiritual people do religion because of what they can get out of it. When you look at verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. There are other translations that translate that ravenous. That word, I think, as far as I could tell, everywhere else it's used in the New Testament, this word ferocious, everywhere else it's used in the New Testament, it, it's translated with something that has a nuance around greed, like bribery or extortion. That's a weird thing for Jesus to say here. Even hard to translate. One commentator described the sense of this word like this, quote, ambition to be first or ambition for gain or money, end quote. Seems like an odd word for Jesus to use here, but he's making a profound point. For spiritual people, the spiritual life is kind of a bribe. I perform for you, God. You better come through for me. Spiritual people want to get something out of their spiritual lives from God and from others, and they demand that we give it. Why do spiritual people get upset with God? I'm talking to myself here. I seriously don't want you to miss that. I get upset with God. Why do spiritual people get upset with God? Because you owe me, God. Look at what I've put in. Spiritual people do religion because of what they can get out of it. But Christians do religion because they desperately need God. I need God in order to be a good person. I need God in order to be real. I need God in order to live beyond worry. The contrast doesn't end there. Spirituality is an outside-in job. I work real hard. I get it right on the outside. I give God a good record, and then God recognizes me and blesses me. That's how the equation works. Plus, other people see how good I am, then I feel good about myself, and I'll get good things, and that's the good life. 
But Christianity is an inside-out job. God changes me on the inside, and I act out of the change that God is making. I act in gratitude without any demand. I recognize the grace that has been offered me, and I'm thankful. You know, if you took Jesus at his literal word here in the sermon, you might get the impression that it would be better to be an absolute degenerate than to be a spiritual person. I mean, of course, he can't be saying that. But you'd get the impression that it would be better to be a degenerate than to be a spiritual person. We know he's not saying that. Wait a minute. In Matthew 21, 31, Jesus said to the religious professionals, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. I take that kind of personally. He's talking to me here. To find Jesus, you've got to lose your spirituality. You've got to lose your goodness. You've got to forget your own effort. You've got to choose him and trust him and seek him, and that's it. And we will make progress in living the good life to the degree that we learn to continually make that choice and lean into it. We will make progress in the good life to the degree that we will learn to continually make that choice and lean into it. Just listen to the language of the Apostle Paul. Some of you know enough of the New Testament. You know that Paul wrote all those letters at the back of the New Testament. He, he wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. And Paul was a trained lawyer. He spent his life getting a master's degree in Old Testament law. But after Paul had had a, an encounter, a life-changing encounter with Jesus, I want you to notice when he talks about his life and his religion and his connection to God. He does not use the language of observance. He does not talk about doing. He doesn't talk about how he's kept the law and or to what degree and what laws were most difficult for him. Instead, he uses the language of salvation repeatedly. He talks about being rescued. He talks about being saved. It's not about his effort. He's so desperate, he needs to be rescued. And then he adds to that idea, to the idea of rescue, he adds that it happens by grace. He says at one point to the Ephesians, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. And none of us can brag about it. It's God's work. And then he described it more fully. He says, look, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. So he rescues us completely by grace. His doing works in us, molds us, shapes us, prepares works for us to do, prepares us to do them, and we walk into them and do those works. And people are blessed and we're blessed the good life. Jesus sets up a dynamic contrast and he wants to make sure we get the picture. The second thing he does is Jesus puts himself in the middle of the whole human drama. He puts himself in the middle of the whole human drama. This is why we talk about Jesus the way we do. I want passage of Scripture. This is 21 through 23 in the section that we read. Not everyone, you remember, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me you evildoer. 
First of all, obviously, Jesus is saying that it's not just about talking the talk. It's about walking the walk. We get this. That's hard, but we get it. We understand that. What is that last part? What in the world is Jesus saying? Jesus makes himself the centerpiece of the interaction between us and God. I never knew you. Away from me. He's placed himself in the seat of the judge. And and then look at the punishment that's rendered. Depart from me. The punishment is to lose Jesus. The centerpiece of human drama, the centerpiece of the interaction between us and God is Jesus. Have you heard the old argument about Jesus when it comes to this kind of teaching? It's, It's absolutely appropriate here. The argument goes something like this. Jesus is decidedly not a great teacher, like all the other great teachers in human history. That's not what Jesus is. That's not who Jesus is. He's not that. The person who said this is either, so the argument goes, a lunatic or a liar or he's Lord. Those are the three options. But he's not an admirable good teacher. He makes himself the centerpiece of the full human drama. Thirdly, he tells us what he'll do for us and in us. And essentially, he secures our lives. We can trust him. We can place our hope in him. Because he secures our lives, we should choose him. Let's look at that last paragraph. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a person who built their house on a rock. Rain came down, the streams rose, wind blew, beat against that house. Pause for dramatic effect. Build his house on the rock, and it was not a guarantee against the wind and the flood and the rain. It came, and it always does. Streams rose, blew, beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine doesn't put it in practice. That's a foolish person building their house on the sand. Rain came, stream rose, wind blew, beat against the house, and the house fell. And like a good communicator, Jesus adds to make sure we get the effect with a great crash. If we follow him, We will be like the wise person. There will be tough times. The rain will come. The winds will blow. The storm will rise. If we have this buried sense that everything will be easy, that the good life amounts to all things going well and being easy, if we have that sense, we will often be deeply disappointed. Rains will come. Winds will blow. But the house will stand. But if we do not follow him, we may be building very fine lives, but they will not survive the trial. Spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you about a movie. It's one of mine and Diane's favorite movies. Years ago, back in the 80s, Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore starred in a movie called Ordinary People. I think Robert Redford directed the movie. It's a really gripping drama Again, if you haven't seen it, I apologize. 40 years old, you should have seen it by now. But anyway, so in the movie, Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore 
are a young couple in this awesome, seemingly, really seemingly awesome marriage. They've got a beautiful home that could be in the Belmont Country Club in Ashburn. I started to name some of our neighborhoods, but I won't step on anybody's toes here. I won't say Willisford or Kirkpatrick Farms. I won't say that. Uh, South Riding. So they have this beautiful home and a great couple, and they have two boys. Perfect family. Boys are good-looking and athletic, and the young son is played by a very young Timothy Hutton. And we learn as the movie progresses that the boys go out at one point, and they're in a boat, and a storm comes up, boat capsizes, and the storm's really bad, they're hanging on, and the older brother, who is the stronger swimmer and the stronger athlete, slips off of the boat, sinks, and drowns. And it's obviously dramatic for the parents, and mom especially takes this very hard and never forgives life. She's deeply embittered, and she really never forgives her younger son whom she blames on this. A significant part of the drama is the interplay between Timothy Hutton and a therapist that he's seeing because he's struggling with this. And I have to tell you full confession, when this movie first came out, Diane and I saw it many years ago. It was an awesome movie, but it was difficult for me to watch because I felt kind of like Timothy Hutton, if you remember from my story last week. So there's this interplay between Timothy Hutton and his counselor dynamic, awesome healing time for Timothy Hutton, and and that's one of the underplays of the movie. But the most dramatic scene in the movie, throughout the movie, for the last 30 minutes of the movie, we we see scenes of Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore, and the marriage is beginning to fray. Not beginning, I mean, it's, you can tell that they are barely keeping a tap on these intense emotions, bitterness, grief, resentment, anxiety. There are certain scenes that are really dramatic, well-acted, that just boils over. So at one point, Donald Sutherland is, it's super early in the morning, maybe the middle of the night, I think it's the middle of the night, and he's awake and downstairs sitting at their dining room table. Some of you are old enough to remember dining rooms. He's sitting at the dining room table, and he's thinking and crying and leaning over their dining room table, and she wakes up and realizes that he's not in bed, and she comes downstairs, and I don't remember his name, but she calls him him Donald. Comes downstairs, she says, Donald? And he looks at her and he says, you're so beautiful, and we would have been fine if there hadn't been any mess. There's always mess. And if you don't choose to build your life on the rock, on his teachings, you will not survive the mess. Jesus means this as the most intense kind of warning for us, not for the bad guys. We are the bad guys. There's always going to be mess. There are going to be days when life feels like Sisyphus. There are going to be days when it seems like we are pushing the rock up the hill. But if we choose him, if we seek him and trust him, we are laying down a pathway to the good life. 
It's not easy, but it is that simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added. Let's pray together. Lord, each of us this morning, I don't know, we've heard you, and I pray, Lord, that you would move us, that you would genuinely stir us into action, into seeking you, into choosing you, trusting you, letting go of our goodness, our spirituality, and just having you. You honestly need to show us what that even means. Many of us have made that choice, Lord, over the course of years or months or And this morning, we make it again. Yeah, stir us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to, I did this at the 9 o'clock service. I'm going to do it again now. I'm going to ask one or three or four of you to be very, very brave this morning. When I was young, I grew up in one of those old-school Baptist churches. Some of you will remember those. And at the end of every service, we would have an invitation where a minister would say, hey, come down front if you want to become a Christian or if you want to join our church. And occasionally, someone would come down front. We don't do that as a matter of course at Gateway because I don't think it's effective, and I don't think it's the only way for somebody to step into the kingdom of God. I don't think it's the only way for someone to choose Jesus, but it is a really powerful way. So this morning, I'm going to offer an invitation. If you don't know him, don't wait for what Jesus calls that day. Good grief, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about being spiritual. I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm talking about knowing him. Stepping into relationship with him. Recognizing, I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. The only thing that you can bring, and the only thing you have to bring, is yes, faith. I'm in. That's it. The rest of it is grace. So, I'm hoping that there may be no one here this morning who needs to take that step. But if there is, I'm going to give you a minute. And here's what I want you to do. Just stand. And after you've done that, At the end of our service today, I'm going to ask you to come down front. Rob and I will be down here and would love to talk to you and pray with you. This is a big stinking deal. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to be big brave. Okay. There are others of you who know him. And you have forgotten. You have put.
put him in the rearview mirror. And you've been building a fine house. And this morning, you might be realizing that it's on sand. In a way, it's harder for you. <laughs> but God is speaking to your heart this morning. And you want to step in. We're going to give you a minute. I want you to stand. Okay, if you know that your life needs to be rescued, P.S., that's everybody. And you need to choose again today. You need to choose again today. I want the real good life. I want the real good life. Not the fake one. I want the real one. And I'm in. P.S., that's all of us. We're going to sing this song, and if anybody needs to join this, then come on down and pray. This is us. This is our testimony. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. We're not okay, right? Lost without hope with no place to begin. Let's sing this with Jordan. sorrow and dead in my sin lost without hope and no place to begin your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began alright pause exceedingly goofy but you're going to do it anyway because you're all good sports right now so when you see the word life in the chorus, I want you to squeeze in good life. It's goofy, awkward, don't care, good anyway. So let's try the chorus, Jordan, and when it says life, we're going to say good life. Here we go. Honor or 
are yours in abundance. Take our lives, Lord. Take them and make of them what you have designed them to be. Good lives. Good lives. I thank you for the decisions that were made today, Lord, and I pray work, seal, move. In Jesus' name. Amen.